Welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, we speak with theorist Benjamin Bratton about his new book, Revenge of the Real, Politics for a Post-Pandemic World, which comes out today, June 29th, from Verso Press. This episode is brought to you by CoQuo, a Berlin-based organization which works across art, tech, and the sciences with the aim of collectively shifting the status quo. This month, CoQuo has facilitated a program on music futures and simulacra, following a conversation with artist Sui Zhen on Refuge Worldwide Radio. The first workshop, Decrypt and Delineate, was a live discussion with Sherry Hugh, Matt Dryhurst, Zola Jesus, Chloe Alexandra Thomas, the artist Verite, and Mikhail Stengel to debrief the NFT mania, sorting the hype from the true innovation. The second workshop, Digital Skin, took place last week and looked at the future role of avatars in music, particularly in regards to celebrity and pop stardom. Among the guests was Trevor McFedries of Rudd and Friends with Benefits. The last segment happens tomorrow, June 30th at 6 p.m. Berlin time, 12 noon in New York, 9 a.m. in LA, live on CoQuo's recently launched Discord. Hit the link in the episode post for entry and to hear your New Models host speaking with CoQuo founder, Caitlin Davies, about community formation beyond Web 2.0 platforms. You can also find links to all of the aforementioned content on CoQuo's site, co colon q-u-o dot c-o. And now, Benjamin Bratton returns to the New Models podcast to discuss his new book, Revenge of the Real. Today, we're speaking with Benjamin Bratton, who is a professor of visual arts at the University of California, San Diego. He directs the terraforming program at Moscow's Strelka Institute of Media, Architecture, and Design, and is perhaps best known to the general public for authoring his 2016 book, The Stack, on software and sovereignty. Benjamin, welcome back to the New Models podcast. Uh, Where are you calling in from today? Uh, I'm in actually in San Diego, California, which is near... America. This is where I uh, I waited out the pandemic. It's bunkered down. I see. Yes, you look like you're in a bunker of some kind there with the shuttered windows or something behind you. You look properly bunkered. Thank you. Well, we're very happy that you're willing to come on the show and speak to us again, this time about your new book, The Revenge of the Real, Politics for a Post-Pandemic World. When we last recorded together, it was 2019. I can't believe it's been two years, but it has been. Benjamin, you were in Berlin and the world did feel fundamentally different. That said, the conversation that we had then, or rather the systemic models that you offered during that conversation, this idea of a sentient earth coming to know itself, mapped Mm. out oppression vision of the physical universe and humanity's place within it that would only become more apparent as a global pandemic placed it into high relief this past year. Written with great energy, your new book is a self-described polemic. 
which very rapidly hits the reader with several key paradigm shifting revelations that the pandemic, or as we like to say, syndemic, we can unpack that later, has laid bare. It's difficult to choose one to begin with, so feel welcome to offer an alternate, but this view of an epidemiological view of society was particularly resonant. So perhaps we could start there. Could you explain what you mean by this line? And in so doing, maybe voice any other macro shifts you feel have come into focus since we last talked. Uh, Yes, thank you. Well, thank you for the very kind introduction. Yeah, so the epidemiological mode of society, I suppose, is a, you know, really comes from my own experience watching the pandemic sort of move as a wave towards the shores. You know, those of us who have a lot of friends and colleagues in China were, you know, watching with horror what was going on there and then probably felt a little bit Cassandra-like, sort of waiting for this to arrive here, where everyone seemed to be sitting on their hands, not really aware of what was coming. And so if you sort of think back to those early months, you know, looking at these epidemiological maps of contagion numbers and vectors and locations and the rest of this, and it became clear that, you know, not only were we watching and trying to map how close the wolf was to the door, but it was, a, it was also a, a kind of mapping of oneself in relationship to this event or situation as it was unfolding. It was a rather different kind of relationship between you know, oneself and the social than what you might learn in a traditional sociological or political theory course, which are traditionally organized around notions of relationships between the individual and the collective, the individual and society, different kinds of semiotic or discursive relationships between obligations and freedom and all the rest of this. And it became clear that like, that's not really what was happening here, that something more fundamental and perhaps elemental about one's situation and relationship to the world as a biological creature living amongst other biological creatures that was in relation to this reverberating viral reality began to kind of set in. So what I call the epidemiological view of society is is sort of predicated on this, that society isn't just a bunch of signs and symbols, that there is a, a deeper biochemical circumstance that is fundamentally indifferent to the kinds of cultural narratives that we may try to project upon it, moral narratives of redemption or salvation or, or judgment. And it's one in which we might see our own position within this as in a pandemic, as more of a node in a larger network of vectors. And as I discuss a little bit later in the book, I think that also has implications for how we even think about, you know, how we think about ourselves as an object as opposed to a subject, how we think about our kinds of responsibilities and obligations to one another, how we think about the fundamental constitution of what we imagine a planetary condition to be. And in essence, I, I think it's one of the lessons from the pandemic that we should hold on to. One of the things that was revealed by the pandemic and was made very clear to a lot of people was this this circumstance. Yeah, absolutely. I think Keller Easterling said like a decoder ring that was laid across our understanding of a global population, that understandings of nation states started dissolving a bit or defined by different things than simply border control. To some extent, yes. I mean, I I agree with Keller's point on the the idea that in many respects, we sort of see the pandemic as something that kind of revealed a lot of underlying conditions, right? A lot of things were kind of laid bare, veils were taken away and circumstances as they are were made more explicit. 
In terms of the nation state, though, and I mean, one of the other aspects of the, I think, the epidemiological view of society is important is it also has to do with the importance of sensing and modeling of the situation, right? The way epidemiologists might view a society and the way we see society through these various interfaces that we were all staring at early on in the pandemic is because there's different moments in which it's possible to sense and identify places where the virus might be and to produce predictive models of that. And so this lesson as well of how a society is able to sense and make sense of itself to produce models of itself as a way of acting back upon itself in order to care for itself, in order to you know, provide healthcare, in order to do all these kinds of things, became a kind of non-negotiable sense of, of how it is all of this would work. Now, that in many ways is what I, I mean by post-pandemic politics, is this ability for society to sense and make sense of itself in ways that would be toward a liberation of public reason. Unfortunately, I think that, you know, one of the ways in which the role of the nation state within this worked rather differently was we also had this very strange kind of this fundamental sociological fact of the pandemic was that everyone was sent home to their country of passport. Mm -hmm. Once the music stopped, everyone was sort of like the Brazilians go back to Brazil, the Koreans go back to Korea, the Serbians go back to Serbia. And instead of it being, a, well, the virus certainly doesn't care about national borders, we do. Right, right. And yes. the, one of the things that's revealed, I think, it was not only the tenacity of the Westphalian state model to monopolize our imagination about how it is that we might organize ourselves and care for ourselves and try to intervene in what is obviously a planetary scale crisis or situation. When push comes to shove, we don't know what else to do. The Westphalian state model is going to be very important for this conversation, I think. Can you, in just a few words, say for our listeners what that is? Oh, sure. So what I mean by that simply is the kind of, you know, comes from Treaty of Westphalia, but it's, it's sort of a political science term that just refers to, you know, if you imagine a world map and then you sort of subdivide that world map into lots of like, you know, little colored loops, right? You know, this is South Dakota and this is North Dakota, this is Canada, this is Japan, Korea this sort of standardization of uh, isomorphic nation-state model that has physical boundaries, that has its own capital, that its own currency or something, that, that this formalization of the state as the standard format, which begins with early modernity, but in many cases really doesn't become truly, you know, quote, universalized until the post-colonial era and after World War II with mm -hmm. the emergence of a lot of post-colonial states. But the notion that, you know, one is a citizen of a particular territory, one says it has a passport, that this passport is the condition that allows you to move between place to place. All of this is very new. All of this is very artificial. All of this is very contingent. Mm -hmm. And yet, in many respects, as we saw with the pandemic, it continues to monopolize our sense of what the political even means. Absolutely. I think it's a very useful shorthand. I, I feel like it's not a failure of imagination so much as these are convenient structures that exist. And Clearly, there needs to be some borders for any type of quarantining to happen, and it happened to be easily enforceable boundaries. Yep, I don't disagree. I think the truism, the virus knows no borders, I think probably no one would debate that. But I did like what you mentioned, that this was basically the biggest control experiment in comparative governance you know, mm -hmm. that we've experienced. And I think that's true to some degree, and it definitely was at first 
But I wonder if that's still true. I mean, don't you think that somehow it's become more complicated than something as simple as that? You wrote this, I guess, almost a yeah. year ago at this point, right? Yeah, that, that's true. Some of this was written, was sort of taken from an essay that was published, I think, last April, kind of in the midst of this. But let me unpack the point that you, that you cite from the book, another way of thinking about what just happened is that, as I say, we've lived through this largest control experiment in comparative governance in our history with the virus as the control variable and these various, not just governments and policies, but political cultures as the kind of experiment subjects here. And in some cases, you know, I think it is possible, and I think we will probably go back and kind of forensically reconstruct policies that did work, policies that didn't work in different kinds of locations. But that's not quite really what I meant because the truth is there's policies that were implemented in countries that had very low deaths per 100,000, which is a pretty good metric, such as South Korea or Taiwan, that never would have been culturally possible in Texas or Italy. It wasn't a matter of, of a government not being able to implement a policy or, as you say, to imagine a policy. It was there's a political culture, a logic of what is acceptable forms of governance, what governance even is, what forms of deliberate social self-administration and self-composition are possible to do that probably had more to do with the difference in outcomes, why Brazil continues to be catastrophic situation, India catastrophic situation, the sort of red states America still not doing very well. I think one of the clear outcomes is that right-wing populist politics simply doesn't work. Johnson in the UK, Trump in the US, Modi in Italy, Bolsonaro in Brazil, that the countries that had the highest rates of deaths per 100,000 are the ones that were also administered by a kind of logic of populist politics that is predicated on the idea that cultural narratives can subordinate physical objective reality to their semiotic dominion in ways that the revenge of the real of the pandemic demonstrated was simply not viable. Why do you think that deaths per 100,000 is the statistic that should be controlled for? Because, I mean, I think I understand the logic for that, but, you know, that might not be, maybe there's something more long-term than that, you know, that can determine the nation's success that is more comprehensive and economic and sociological. Oh, I'm, sh I'm sure. And that we won't be able to determine for the next decade, you know. I'm sure of it. Uh, no, and I think it's a good point to make. I don't think that looking through something as complex as what we just lived through would make sense to sort of optimize for in any kind of regard. I think, though, it's like a rough metric for comparative outcomes for different kinds of conditions and different kinds of policies. It's a good back-of-the-envelope way of looking at it. I think one of the things that you do see here is that GDP per capita didn't necessarily help as much as you might have thought, that countries with very high GDP per capita had a higher death rates per 100,000 in, in many cases. And, and so it's maybe a way to sort of think about not only the capacity for sensing and tracking the contagion as a way of sort of, again, have a society being able to sense and model itself, but also a metric for how a healthcare system is actually able to intervene in what may be there. And certainly in the United States, one of the things that was revealed and made very clear were the inadequacies of, of our healthcare system, which is one that's organized around a kind of hyper-individualist privatization of access, which doesn't make sense in a pandemic in which risk is so obviously collective. Just to sort of summarize that a bit, you're talking about like a miscalibration both on the level of the individual or the citizen, say, mm. and on the level of the state. But I, I know quite early in your book when you're talking about populism subordinating the repairing of broken systems to a virtual contest of semiotic brinkmanship, mm -hmm. and you say, this is how statues of war heroes can command more earnest defense than the bodies of living people, how viral means of celebrity bodies can break the internet. Uh, and you go on and you say how these 
these abstract symbolic forces that uh, get a lot of populist traction end up being more effective than a very real material virus. Mm -hmm. We know that the morgues are filling. Can you speak a bit more about this virtual context of semiotic brinkmanship? What do you mean by that? And this is like the failure of the individual is participating in this populism, I imagine. I don't know that it's so much a failure of the individual necessarily. I think that it may be a way of trying to give a a more specific definition of what happened as well, I think, with this recent decadal wave of populist politics globally and the the rise of of its right-wing and left-wing variants. One of the things I think that kind of characterizes particularly the right-wing modes of populist politics is a kind of activist postmodernism, in a way, a, a notion that reality really can be organized through a calibration of different kinds of social construction that the fiction of a nation, the fictions of history, the fictions of race, the fictions of gender norms, actually have a reality, a depth and an importance and a gravity for the organization of society, even though that they are utterly fictitious and artificial and that should and must, you know, subordinate the real. Like this, this in a certain sense, maybe, you know, the way we, we would look back on and define this right-wing populism of this time. And when I say that the conditions of semiotic brinkmanship, the problem is that one of the ways in which this has rather clearly poisoned all political discourse up and down the spectrum, left, right, top, and center, is that it it has organized the question of the political around the question of the contestation of meaning and the contestation of, mm-hmm. of signifiers, the contestation of signs as if the the contestation over this constitutes not just the basis for the organization of cultural power and cultural capital, but constitutes the organization of the real itself. As if somehow that this contestation over symbols is a viable substitute for the collective <laughs> composition of reality itself. This is Bolsonaro. This is Modi. This is Trump. And this is, to some extent, any number of our friends on the left as well. It's kind of a hard thing to undo, though, once it's been proven that it actually works. I mean, the right wing populists Uh in those states, the people who voted for these populist Mm -hmm. leaders who believed in this sort of representation over reality, they don't care. They're not optimizing that people died. Yeah. Yeah, they aren't optimizing. And it's actually the fact that the past decade has proven that people will double, triple down on this mode of perceiving and being in the world and actually don't care about death. Because their representational belonging is like eco-death, the death of their sense of community or something is like a stronger force than whatever material threat is there? Or I mean, I wonder just how you undo that, though. (laughs) Well, I, I think your characterization of the situation is sadly, I think there's a lot of truth to it. And, you know, a lot of my friends in Brazil, the way in which they talk about the kind of flippancy that continues the tone of the day in terms of how it is that people are, you know, the capacity for rationalization, the capacity for a certain degree of denial. You know, I talked about earlier in the book, the Kubler-Ross stages of, of grief, denial, acceptance, rationalism, you know, things like this as well. I think we've invented a few more within relation to this <laughs> pandemic. And degrees of, of rationalization are certainly, I, I think, part of that now. So, no, I, I'm not disagreeing with your point that this has a tremendous degree of power, that this process has a tremendous degree of efficacy. That's, in a way, precisely my point. But at the same time, it, that doesn't mean it constitutes anything remotely close to a uh, basis for a kind of viable strategy for how it is a planetary society should seek to understand itself, compose itself, administer itself, care for itself, 
over the coming decades. In a way, it you know, it's why we can't have nice things. Yeah. Right. I want to speak a little bit about, I mean, I guess it's more of an anecdotal experience within Germany, but you do hold it up as, you know, one of the examples of the successful countries, specifically because their sensing mechanisms were so robust early on. But <laughs> that wasn't really the experience on the ground. They they actively <laughs> were discouraging you from getting a test unless you had symptoms for a very long yeah. time. It wasn't yeah, until very right. recently that they had ubiquitous testing. It immediately got gamed by the mafia where they're getting paid 18 euros a test. Wow. All the gambling facilities in my neighborhood are now testing <laughs> facilities. It's, I mean, it's a joke. <laughs> There's, you know, a tracing app. I have never been able to download it because I have an American app store thing. Yeah. I don't know. There's been basic failures. And there's also, because the culture is conducive to it, they've really let the technocrats have full reign of mm. experimenting with a whole array of very, very specific you know, policies mm -hmm. about how many people can be at a table and how far apart and things. And <laughs> I can't say that any of these things specifically can be associated with the relative success, which at this point, I don't think you can single out Germany as a successful one, especially considering the vaccine rollout. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess I just don't know how to jibe my general faith or like desire to have faith in technocratic solutions and sensing mechanisms with the fact that they just like don't work in practice very often. So yes, you could say we need better ones, but how exactly? Because I feel like if Germany couldn't do it, it's going to be harder for a place without that political culture that's conducive to doing that. Much harder. Right. So thanks. This is an amazing anecdote. The gambling place. Is, I mean, it's such, it's perfect. <laughs> what I mentioned earlier in the book was talking about, you know, Germany was able to roll out some testing a little bit earlier on. Like clearly one of the issues with writing a book like this is that, you know, reality changes very quickly and this as well. And so there's the other aspect of the sort of the, what I'm discussing in, in Germany as a, there's a passage in the book where I talk about the big anti-lockdown rallies that were co-organized with some of the big international anti-vaccine Groups, Robert F. Kennedy's thing. You know, Berlin was a huge epicenter for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quarantine. This, this kind of, you know, interestingly, you know, obviously, kind of crosses political spectrum. Not just anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown, but in a certain sense, a kind of anti-reality form of politics. I think the question of Germany is much more complex than I would have opportunity to really give a portrait of in this as well. Let me, though, get to what I think is sort of the heart of your question, which has to do with what's really possible. There were countries that were more successful than others, and I think that there might be things that would be important to learn from them. Clearly, Taiwan and Korea were countries that were able to be much more successful in a lot of regards. I mean, it's kind of amazing to think, but Taiwan didn't really need to shut down the schools for all of this. That the capacity for a kind of targeted testing and intervention, that the mechanism for this was such that the kind of excruciatingly vague and up and down and open and closed lockdown insanity that we've all lived through, this really wasn't necessary. This didn't have to be this way. And the questions of why it was is, I think, exactly what we do want to be discussing. Well, first of all, I should say is to clear up a kind of misconception, the book is not an argument on behalf of tracing apps per se. <laughs> In the U.S., the, you know, the tracing apps were a fucking disaster as well. Yeah. In the U.K., yeah. they were a catastrophe inside a catastrophe inside a catastrophe. And part of the reason for this is just, you know, it's not that the United States doesn't have the technological capability of building a tracing app that makes sense. Even the Google Apple one that was proposed really early on, 
just on the software level would have been perfectly fine. Though it was interesting that it was a lot of the European governments that actually wanted to perforate some of the anonymization capacities of that platform. That was Google and Apple that actually pushed back, weirdly enough. The issue wasn't this. The issue in the United States was that the mobilization of the people who would actually be able to reconstruct those traces was like something we have become incapable of. Like we just, we are incapable of governing ourselves in such a way that the hiring and mobilization and training of a sufficient number of people that would actually make something like a tracing app meaningful in any sense, we were not capable of, of pulling off. In addition to this, there's also the, uh, the kind of the cultural norm of a kind of hyper-individualist you know, sense of self in relationship to a society and a relationship to a collective, that the very idea that you are a biological creature amongst other biological creatures and that the conditions of risk to you are actually collectivized amongst this other assemblage of biological creatures is just not something that, speaking in the American context, that we're capable of processing and acting upon in a way that would actually work. And so, to be clear, the models of sensing and modeling and simulation and administration and composition that I'm speaking of as the basis of what our post-pandemic politics needs to look like have to do with this the ability of a society to sense and make sense of itself and to act upon itself through compassion and reason, which will have to necessarily have to be based on, a, at least in the American sense, a kind of tampering of the hyper-individualist ethos. It's not an argument for a particular portfolio of technological interventions as some kind of deus ex machina that it's going to solve everything. I don't think that there's any way in which any kind of vision of a, what I call a positive biopolitics at a planetary scale can work at all without intensive capacity for technical intervention, abstraction, modeling, and capacity. But the real issue is, is not the technology. The real issue is us. Mm -hmm. Another quote from you that I think is apt here is the extreme subjectivism that asks you to be the change you wish to see in the world, as if internal mental states cause the external world to come into being, is not the solution to neoliberalism. It is its pinnacle of it. Yes. And that is our Achilles heel, is exactly this extreme individualism that neoliberalism has asked us to hone. Yes. And I, I mean, in a kind of practical way, I am curious, like, how we see a way out of that when all of the apps that we're using, all of our interfaces are only further inscribing that. I mean, right. that said, there is this, what we call dark forest activity, which is maybe doing something else. Maybe we can get to that later in this conversation. But like, yeah, how do we see a path outside of this, especially when we're inscribed in these, as you've of course spoke at length about these digital stacks. Yeah. Of course, TikTok is this Chinese app, which is now used, you know, in the GAFA stack or EU American stack. But like, how do do we find a way off of this pinnacle and not just make that peak go higher when every all of our all of our interfaces are reinforcing the idea that's of right. the individual, our devices, yeah. our quantification? You're exactly that's exactly right. I mean, that's this is exactly the way to I think to set up the question for what a, a more viable form of a planetary biopolitics would actually look like. To sort of clarify a little of what I think you're asking in relationship to the book, there's sort of two things here. One is that there's a way in which I, I link this question of a kind of populist intensification of a kind of a narrative view of reality to what we might see as a kind of neoliberal hypersubjectivism. 
in which politics is understood as an expression of experiences. The, and what the way I see this in a more summary level is our condition is one in which subjectivity, identity, and agency are all conflated into a single thing. And so a sense of a, like a lack of agency, the remedy of this is thought to be an intensification of identity or an intensification of subjectivity. That's not where agency says. And I think we need to sort of peel some of these apart. And that's a more complicated discussion. But to the question of planetary scale computation that you describe here and how it is that we actually enter into this, there's a, a longer discussion in the book which you point to that has to do with a kind of fundamental pathology within planetary scale computation. It is intensely focused on the sensing and modeling and prediction of the desires and behaviors of individual homo sapiens, like of all the things that we could do with this massive infrastructure, right? I mean, imagine it kind of like this. Imagine the, the blue marble image, you know, from the Apollo 17 spacecraft. Imagine this not as a single image, but like as a very fast forward movie. And you watch this, you sort of scrub through this and you see the continents moving backwards and forwards. You see the volcanoes happening and at the very end of this movie. You would see the planet do something very strange, which is to sprout this this artificial crust, if you like, of satellites and transoceanic cables and data centers, the planet has become capable of all feats of communication and calculation and all the rest of this. And one of the things that the planet has done with this artificial cognitive labor is to figure out things like, how old is the planet? But also, more recently, that it's getting warmer. So to put it directly, the very idea of climate change is an epistemological accomplishment of planetary scale computation. Without this capacity to sense and model and simulate the inhumanly complex forces that constitute this change in planetary biochemistry, this very idea would not be possible. So to me, Earth sciences in a certain sense represents a kind of alternative path for ways in which heuristically we might think about other ways and other sort of forms of planetary scale computation that might be more viable and might be more relevant, frankly, for the organization of a planetary society and the kind of positive biopolitics that it might be predicated upon. But what's the difference between that and the GAFA stack or the BAT stack or any of these things? Well, foremost, as you point to, these are the fundamental, the core unit of analysis, if you like, of these stacks is the individuated person the single serving user. And society is understood as an aggregation of these individuated subjective experiences in some kind of pluralization. And to the extent at which we can intensify the boundaries of these, intensify the prediction of these, then the platforms will imagine itself to be working better. But this is a comically inefficient model of the way the world works. It's an inappropriate model for the understanding of the way society works. And so in the long term, thinking of the models of, of how it is that the computational capacity, including the sensing and the production of data, might work, that is not predicated on the intensification of subjectivism in, in this regard, I think is the fundamental shift that needs, to, uh, that needs to occur. And that's more than just taking back our data, because quite frankly, like, we can take back the data from Facebook. You know, you can have all of the bit trillions of likes and unlikes and all the rest of this, but it won't, it doesn't matter because it, essentially that's the wrong data. 
That's not the data that we need in order to properly organize society. We've spent all this time producing massive amounts of the wrong data. And now there needs to be a, a sea change. And at great carbon cost too. Like we Tremendous. generated all this data, like at a very big material cost. That's right. That's right. What's useful data? I mean, what would it look like exactly? Well, it would obviously sort of depend on the kind of context. We need to be able to understand the conditions by which the basic provisions of a kind of universal services to one another can be, can be constructed. There's been a lot of discussion, obviously, over the last decade or so about a universal basic income by which you know, you're providing people of the kind of baseline conditions of living. But I think in many respects, the real discussion should be about a universal basic services provision, which is sort of rights to rights to housing, rights to healthcare, education, so forth and so on. I think you can think of it on a kind of population level. There's kind of three ways in which you can architect this. One is that you're seeing with the migration, you could call them migration crises, you could call them you know, migration situations. I, I think crises is probably the wrong word. But what you're seeing is that the waves of, of millions of people moving from one part of the world to another part of the world so that they would have access to the infrastructure that would be able to provide them with these basic services. So you're moving the people to the infrastructure. Another way in which you can think about this is you're moving is to move the infrastructure to the people. Imagine some kind of larger combination of the Biden infrastructure plan and a planetary Green New Deal and whatever else you think of this through in terms of a reshifting of the capital and infrastructural relationships between the global north and the global south. The deployment and the construction of infrastructures in parts of the world such that the migration of people to the infrastructures is not the driving demographic force, that access to the services is more ubiquitously and universally available. And the third one is the ways in which many of these kinds of services are more accessible to people online than they have been before. I think most of your listeners are probably familiar with the Estonia examples of you know logging on to a kind of residency's capacity with this small Baltic state that allows you to sign signatures and do contracts as if you're citizenship without ever setting foot in there. The significance of this is not that it's now we get to pay taxes in small Baltic states, but rather that just as the cloud has absorbed many of the fundamental functions of the state, the state is increasingly evolving into something that is capable of extending itself and providing services to its, its users and its citizens online as well. So the politics of the next century is about in essence, there's some sort of Theseus paradox question of sort of disassembling the boat and assembling another one of a disassembling of a current planetary infrastructure and the replacement of this planetary infrastructure with ones that would actually be able to have a long-term, really long-term viability, social viability, ecological viability, and, and just a kind of heuristic. I think these three modalities of people to infrastructure, infrastructure to people logging on, so to speak, would be the way in which it would sort of work. To do this is not something that it can be reduced to simply a technological question. It's not simply a matter of if we just had more computers, then this would happen. But rather, there is no way for this to happen that is not itself also a kind of fundamental transformation of the way we think about the social logic of infrastructure, the way we think about how societies sense and make sense and model of themselves. And more importantly, I think it has a lot to do with the kind of recalibration and re-embrace of the logic of planning, of foresight, of coordination and foresight over longer periods of time, which means the ways in which models turn into become simulations, the simulations become recursive, all the ways in which you might imagine something like earth sciences, which is predicated on you know, simulations of the past, present, and future of the earth, applied to a far more complex planetary dynamic, which is planetary human society. I, um, 
Yeah, no, there's there's so much there. Yeah, there's so much there. Thank you for that. Also. Sorry, it was a long it was it was a, it was a long it was a long answer to a straightforward question, but that's what you get. Well, yeah, what is good data? What is bad data? <laughs> but um, I mean, I do wonder if all of this sort of you know useless, emotive, subjective data that we're generating is going to prove to be useful at some type of like behavioral economic way of incentivizing behavior into shifting towards generating more useful data and less wasteful data. It's possible. But I I, um, I can't help but get stuck on the planning idea. And sure. where is the capacity for that? I understand why that's a good idea to have long-term plans, but I don't see the, yeah, where is the social capacity for that? Um, I mean, do, do you see an example of that happening somewhere as a model that could be expanded on? I mean, I also, maybe just to interject, because this is something that came up on the Discord as well, Maybe an extension of that or an alternative to it is a lot of people really had a desire for practical examples or practical sort of speculative pathways to a system or a global society like you're suggesting. So there are a lot of like, but hows and what would it look like that are asked? I mean, and you probably get this a lot. So I wonder if there are any common hows or what <sighs> that you get asked that you actually do have a sort of idea of a concrete timeline or path or possibility for it that can kind of be your uh, star examples for this. Hmm. We can use the term plan. Let's hear your five. I want to have your five-year plan or your however many series of five-year plans it will take. My five-year plan. Braden's five-year plan. My five, those are maybe two different questions. It can operate on a number of different, a number of different levels. That is, there's a there's an answer to the question in terms of the political. There's an answer to the question that might be more economics. There's an answer to the question that might have to do with the role of geotechnologies within this. And obviously, these are related in, in different kinds of ways. To the question of the political, though, one of the things that we saw with the rise of political populism over the last decade or so was also a globalization of politics that was probably to some extent unprecedented and not necessarily entirely positive either. But you know, you can look at different countries, whether this is, United, as I mentioned, United States or India, Brazil, or the Philippines, or whatever, and the kinds of shifts in political culture that were happening were ones that, to certain extent, were more regular than they were irregular. That the fault lines were between urban educated elites and rural cultural nationalists and so forth. People like Steve Bannon sort of saw this as the nature of the game, that politics now was globalized. Not only that culture was upstream of politics, but that politics itself was kind of globalized, the extent to which culture was globalized, and had mobilized an enormous network around supporting nationalist, local, you have, it kind of weird, you have a global international movement for the support of localist, nationalist groups. <laughs> Whereas on the left, you've got a bunch of localist, sometimes nationalist groups trying to support an internationalist movement. Uh, and I, I'm so not true. sure which is, which is crazier. Yeah. I, I think that to a certain extent, and obviously I think you saw with Cambridge Analytica and some of these kinds of things, the ways in which I think on the left and in the center, this globalization of politics was received was as a kind of, it was scandalous, that this was a perforation or molestation of sovereign identity and capacity. I don't see, on a very practical level, any way in which we'll be able to address the cultural, ecological, and political issues that we will continue to be facing over the next century that are intrinsically planetary in scope, unless they are being dealt with 
and defined and acted upon at a similar kind of scale. And so the first thing I might say is we need to stop something scandalized by the idea that politics is globalized. You know, imagine transnational political parties with common platforms, with common candidates that would actually recognize this situation for what it is and to be able to actually kind of shift this where it needs to go one parliament at a time. I think we saw that a little bit with the appearance of lots and lots of Green New Deals a few years ago. You know, every sort of little place had their own kind of version of this. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting about all of the Green New Deals one way or another was not only that this was a kind of radical left imaginary that was trying to deal with a planetary crisis of climate change directly, but that it was, in essence, a kind of infrastructural vision for how to deal with this, that it recognized that a fundamental shift in planetary geochemistry needed to be addressed at the level of planetary geochemistry, not necessarily at the level of the narratives about it. But one of the other interesting shifts I think was implied by this is the shift in the logic of politics itself from a logic of that the, the political is the space where the voice of the people is expressed and registered and indexed and then represented in a group of people who then vote for monies, which eventually down the line will cause some kind of effect. Instead, politics was sort of shifted from instead of a kind of indexing of the voice of the people, the purpose of this is the administration of ecosystems itself. The function of governance is the administration of ecosystems inside of which human, all of our societies are embedded. This is, you know, I think a, actually a quite significant shift in the logic of governance, in the logic of the political, and certainly a shift in the logic of what we might constitute a kind of a viable biopolitics. Oh, no, I also realized that Daniel had a question about planning. You know, in a certain extent, I think that, you know, certainly a number of others have kind of made this point. Just as in, in a certain way, some of the large multinational platforms may have solved the socialist pricing problem. Such as Amazon or... Such as Amazon and Google, right, exactly. The old idea that, like, if you just had enough computational power, you could actually produce an artificial price because you would actually have enough information within the market. That dream of socialist planners has been solved by Amazon, strangely <laughs> enough. These are companies that largely have been successful because of planning. Amazon is a planned economy. Google is a planned economy. Walmart is a planned economy. Your listeners are probably familiar with some, some of these arguments. I'm not allergic to the idea that one of the lessons that should be drawn from the success of these companies to monopolize and organize such significant parts of the global economy is that their techniques are a successful way to organize significant parts of the global economy. They've sort of demonstrated this to be so. And so I don't think that we're lacking of examples of how it is that computationally intensive, socially complex, reticulated organizations can structure long-term plans, infrastructure organization that would be able to successfully construct large parts of the economy in their image the problem is that many of them are largely in the private sector, that they're motivated by short-term shareholder interest, that they've been organized around the kind of pathologies of hyper-subjectivized semiotic consumerism and, and all the rest. It doesn't mean that the basic logic of coordinated organization that they've proven to be successful is not actually successful. It proves that it's being used for all the wrong things. Hmm. Yeah, maybe there's a pivot here to talk about China a little bit, because I do think that Taiwan is 
is held up as the paradigm of a successful response. You talk about large centralized planned economies. It happens to be Amazon, but some kind of like fusion of, uh, let's say, a Taiwanese political culture and the technological capacity of massive planned economies like Amazon. And you also mentioned in your book that China... Well, oh, let me qualify that. It's like, yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't want to have your listeners have the understanding is that what I'm suggesting is if we could just mix Taiwanese model Asian technocracy with Amazon, eat your bugs, Soylent kind, kind of universe, <laughs> that, all, that our, all of our problems would be solved. What I'm, suggest, what <laughs> I'm, I'm suggesting, suggesting is... That, but. Okay, okay. What I am suggesting is that the, is that the model of a viable planetary political economy is is one that it's I have a very hard time imagining that does not also include the aspects of long-term planning, that does not include aspects of liberated public reason for collective self-organization. And where might we find examples of those positive symptoms would be the way in which it's working itself out. So to me, there's a significant difference between just sort of combining things from the present and saying this is the solution and understanding sort of the vectors of this world. But you had a question about China, which is, of course, super Well, I was trying to, you know, you don't talk about, you know, China's solution as sort of, that's never really held up. And you mentioned in the book, that's because people somehow, you know, find this vaguely scary, even though they can't necessarily point to any of the specific policies that were implemented that was so scary. And that moreover, a fear of China is sort of like a placeholder for a fear of technology or technocracy in general. Or, um, it, it is. Is that is that fair? Yeah, yeah. So I do wonder though: is, is Taiwan symbolized like the good <laughs> flavor of that? Because it feels like to me a lot of the people who are so just reactionary against China are these sort of libertarians that are worried about bug eating, you know, and bug life. And I think a lot of them would also bring up Taiwan and Singapore and these types of examples as paradigms. So yeah, I just wonder, is there something to the fear about China because maybe this is where they have managed to actually implement some of these sensing technologies you're advocating on a social level and that, you know, there's something icky about that for people? I I don't think that the sensing technologies that I'm advocating for are the sensing technologies that China has implemented. I think that technologies that China has implemented are emphatically focused on individual tracing and shaming and so forth. Just to be clear, at the same time, I mean, there's a bit of a nuance, you know, we need to sort of to unravel this to get a real sense of how all this works. More generally, you know, I've been spending a lot of time in Shanghai going back and forth, not recently, obviously, but the discourse about all of these kinds of questions, about what the future of governance constitutes, what the proper role of technology in society is, what the relationship between individuals and groups, what the function of cities might be within all of this, that one hears and is part of in North America and Western Europe is so intensely provincial compared to mm-hmm. the kinds of conversations that people are having in the rest of the world. And I, I think we, we sort of know this, but what I was suggesting in those phases of the book is that the image of China that we may have in California and London and Berlin and the figure of China, China in quotes, let's say, as a kind of specter haunting all of this in the background and the complexity of the actual you know, social political reality of China are at a mismatch and it is to our detriment that this is so. There are tremendously significant issues, you know, huge problems that I even know since trying to paper over in terms of like the reality of life in China, but they are not necessarily the ones that we're spending a lot of time talking about. What I meant to say with that, with the quote that you paraphrased is that 
the longer and deeper history of Orientalism in the West includes kind of reflexive tropes about despotism. The Oriental as a, as a space of despotism where life is cheap, where the individual and their you know, lives are subordinated and, and suppressed. And to the extent to which in the West that we may be experiencing to a certain sense, you know, and as Carly has sort of mentioned through this is something that's strongly mediated through planetary scale computation, a certain sense of a kind of a crisis of individuality, a crisis of subjectivity, a crisis of agency, where on the one hand that we realize that we're embedded on a planetary situation that is incredibly complex networks of the flows of energy and matter and information and that we're entangled and interrelated with all of this. And yet at the same time told that the conditions for our own personal actualization have to be predicated on the construction of these kind of fictitious autonomy. It's no wonder mm. that people are going mad and that this becomes we project this onto the role you know, of technology more generally. What is happening, and I think was what happened for some time, and it was similar with Japan in the 80s, the fear of China and the fear of technology and the fear of a kind of crisis of individuation have become conflated. And they become conflated by an, activiz- an activation of a sort of deeper and more fundamental Orientalist tropes, or at least those tropes were there sort of for, for the ready and for the making. Now, it is absolutely 100% true that many of the things that China did to respond to the virus not only could not happen in Texas or Italy or, or Brazil, they should not happen in those places. They were you know, draconian and inefficient and bungling with a completely different vocabulary of bungling than we saw sort of in the West. A similar kind of theater of governance, where in the West you might, you know, in Brazil, you've got Bolsonaro taking his shirt off and, and pounding his chest and explaining why he's too strong to get the virus. In China, you saw men in hazmat suits watering the sidewalk every day as, you know, as if you get the virus from the sidewalk. This kind of theater of competence, theater of authority that works on it. And they're both equally absurd. At the same time, it's worth noting that people have been able to walk around without a mask and to go back to their everyday lives, for the most part, in Chinese cities for almost a year now. That we're just reopening in June 15th, California reopens. People have been walking around without masks for almost a year in China. So the discourse coming from there, looking at the West, is we are more free than you. We've been walking around without a mask. We've been doing, gone back to our everyday lives while you people are wallowing in your own crapulent incompetence and are prisoners of it. And you're still having to do all this crazy, stupid stuff because you just can't get your kit together. There's something to this. It's also interesting to note that the term social distancing there never was a kind of Mandarin equivalent of this term social distancing that entered into general widespread popular usage because it wasn't needed. There was this intense lockdown, you know, a completely, you know, top-down authoritarian lockdown that, that had this sort of a massive social quarantine that, again, I don't think could have happened or maybe should have happened anywhere else. I'm not advocating for this in and of itself. It's more complicated than this. And yet afterwards, there was this different kind of freedom. So to maybe underscore the point again, I'm not making the case that the magic examples that we need to find already exist in, in the Asian technocracies. And that if we simply would adopt these, then we, everything would be fine. What I am saying is that in the short term, 
as we come out of the pandemic and as Western countries and Western societies come out of the pandemic and try to make sense of what happened, what did we just live through and why did this happen? What was unnecessary about this? What I'm hearing from a lot of my friends and colleagues in the West in terms of the way they think about the relative success of some other countries are massive levels of cope massive levels of rationalization about why it is the West had to do what it had to do. And I think we would be better served if we were open to the idea that maybe we have something to learn from other countries, other policy structures, um, and that this entire discussion is not one that takes place within our little circle. Once again, the real question of the architecture of a post-pandemic planetary politics, whatever you want to call it, going forward, is one that will absolutely has to include Asia as a primary agent, primary subject, primary actor in all of this. And it's not going to be a discussion that we can have in our our relatively provincial circles and try to work itself out. I hope that clarifies a little bit of the way in which I tried to frame the the China question in the book. Yeah. I mean, I do have a question, sort of a, a counter to this, and also to speak to people who I can imagine wanting some criticism. I was thinking back to, I think it was in SMLXL, like the old Bruce Mao, Rem House book, yeah. maybe it was somewhere else around this time, where they were studying traffic patterns in a sub-Saharan African city and traffic patterns in, I'm going to mess this up, but like LA or something. Mm-hmm. And they were seeing how the traffic patterns in this African city were like seemingly chaotic and how like it was obviously not a good system because there was no overarching plan. Um, And of course the traffic patterns in LA have, you know, big concrete streets to tell you exactly how to go from point A to point B and their rules, et cetera. You can get fined for doing the wrong thing. And they saw that like, I'm probably botching this, but the essence of it is right. That the traffic patterns in the African city actually moved just as fast in the end as the one in LA, right? And each had their own kind of intelligence. And I also am mindful of the fact that the pandemic is a particular kind of stressor. It's a particular kind of I don't know if we can say the pandemic is sentient exactly, but it's a force that, that's indifferent to us. There are other that's forces right. that are indifferent to us. That's right. China happened to be particularly well optimized to respond rapidly and effectively. Like that cultural protocol seemed to be optimized to respond effectively to a pandemic. Yeah, in some in some ways. And in other ways, just to be clear, they made you know ridiculous blunders and mistakes that we didn't make. And so it's really, I'm really not holding them up as the oh, simple yes. kind of preferred example. Yeah, T- totally. Not not saying that they are exactly the best at it, but like, is there any benefit to actually not having like a monocultural level response to becoming a better sensing layer? Is there actually like an evolutionary benefit to having really at least a couple really different variants yes. of ways of responding 100%. to crisis and Absolutely. allow those to yes. be? Hundred percent. Then, yeah, if yeah. that's true, then how then to and maybe this gets back to Dan's question or your question. Well, I would I would also just frame it as African traffic patterns probably emerge in the way like desire paths emerge yeah. through a park. Yes. But my my question is, where does the sexy part come from? Where does the desire come yeah, from? Yeah. Populism thrives off of fantasy and vitality and, uh, and there's some excitement. intelligence to it, even though it's like mm. obviously also well, holding it's, us it's back. An in intelligence some ways. of dopamine, of dopamine, and, right? And, and, like a biological right? intelligence, but, not like uh, a frontal cortex. But, I, I wonder where that aspect of yeah. it to work, like where the motivation is yeah. going to come from. And if we are going to have desire paths plot some of this, where will the desire come from? Okay, at least two really interesting questions here as well. Yes, I am not advocating for a monocultural response to this as well. The notion of, I think, of, of recognizing that we have always been, in one way or another, a planetary society and that the mm. disclosure and revelation of this 
as something that we now need to sort of reorganize ourselves to be able to better respond to. It you know, does not demand or does not necessarily imply some kind of you know, Borg-like universalism. What it demands is an understanding and a recognition of a kind of irreducible entanglement and interconnectedness in such a way that that will constitute a shift in desire to such extent that the vocabulary of desire and the reality of the world in which that desire is investing itself would have a greater degree of correspondence. Mm -hmm. I think there's a difference between a desire that is a kind of untethered and free-floating within a kind of closed-loop semiotic noise sphere and one that is actually directly invested in the world from which it comes. The desire and all the things that you, I think, mean by this word are all things that the world does. Right? They're all things, they've been part of the way in which our species has evolved, part of the ways in which our, the complexity of our society is involved. I think part of the problem with the, the kind of hyper-subjectivist populism, free-floating semiotic universe in which we find ourselves is it's disengaged and disentangled from that world itself. And I don't see re realistically any way in which it can actually be entangled. It can actually be directly without it starting from a recognition of the premise of, of that planetarity, of understanding it, the desire itself as a function of this planetarity, as something that emerged from it, that you know, the world, the planet folded itself in particular ways. And one of the ways it did it was to make this sapient species you know, that's capable of language and foresight and erections and all the rest of it. I mean, you say right in your first pages, entanglement is baseline, not exception. So that's right. That's right. And, and, and what I mean by that is like one of the, the kind of the early waves of critical social thought, so to speak, that came out of this was from people looking at, oh, well, this is what you get when you have agriculture. This is what you get when you have in people doing things that they shouldn't have done. We're going to have to sort of retreat back into some kind of natural state of separation from one another. I, to me, look, the thing is, is that that response, we all know variations of that, that kind of meta heuristic response to any of these kinds of things. We've all read tons of books that are basically arguing this. This is not a critical stance of resistance to the logic of Western modernity. This is one of the fundamental tropes of Western modernity. Mm -hmm. we, we've, we've despoiled the Eden. We, we've eaten from the wrong apple. And now it's called this thing. And if we can just, you know, go into the pristine wilderness, if we can just make our bodies pristine again, you know, this itself, I think, is one of the misapprehensions of Western modernity that we would do well to graduate from. Thank you for listening to the New Models podcast, and thank you, Benjamin Bratton, for returning to the show. The second part of this conversation, where Benjamin addresses critical thoughts and questions from the New Models community, will be released in the coming week, exclusively for subscribers. You can join and find out more at patreon.com slash newmodels. Benjamin Bratton's The Revenge of the Real, Politics for a Post-Pandemic World, is out today from Verso Books. Versobooks.com always has specials and extras available at their store, like 40% off of all books until tomorrow, June 30th. So we recommend heading there now to pick up The Revenge of the Real and whatever else piques your radical interests. Speaking of books, we'll be launching New Models long-awaited Y2K20 Codex on July 9th in Berlin at Trauma Bar und Kino. We'll be streaming live from the event and joined by the Codex team both IRL and digitally, with performances by Berlin friends Jan Voracek, Carl Holmquist, and Richard Kennedy. 
The event is free, and if you weren't able to grab a copy of the Codex online, we'll have a limited number of copies available. We'll see you there, and see you next episode.